Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2012 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined with the editor John McConnell. John, welcome. Let's start with a research article and this is looking at malaria control, very specifically vector control in an area where malaria is endemic in West Africa. What type of vector control are we talking about? What type of measures are we talking about here? This is uh, a randomised trial that's uh, taken place in uh, Benin in West Africa and it's looking to see whether the combination of insecticidal mosquito nets with indoor residual spraying or something called carbamate treated plastic sheeting has advantages in terms of uh, controlling mosquito biting and transmission over the use of the insecticide treated nets alone. So that, that those, these are nets that are called long-lasting in, insecticidal nets. And the type of study is a, is a cluster randomised trial. So villages were allocated to the various different interventions and the primary endpoint that the investigators looked at was the uh, incidence, so-called incidence de- density of malaria in children. So that's the uh, rate at which children became ill with malaria. Tell us about the results, John. Well, the results did show up some, um, some, some rather interesting findings and it's all a question of how you interpret them. The kind of baseline intervention against which everything was compared was called uh, targeted use of the uh, long-lasting insecticidal nets. So the baseline group was insecticidal nets given to pregnant women and to children six years and younger. And all the other interventions, the combination of nets and indoor uh, mosquito spraying and these carbamate-treated plastic sheeting, were compared against this baseline intervention. And actually, um, the other somewhat more complicated interventions had no advantage in terms of uh, malaria incident sensitivity over the baseline intervention of uh, just targeting uh, bed nets to particular high-risk groups. So a negative outcome trial in that sense. So are there important policy implications based on it? I think there are. I mean, on the one hand, you could argue that with the uh, with the interventions as they stand, uh, then perhaps we don't need to spend money on uh, trying to implement them if they're not going to produce any improvement over the sort of more basic intervention of, of targeted bed nets. On the other hand, targeted bed nets alone is almost certainly not going to uh, reduce malaria below a certain critical threshold where transmission stops. So I think another message from this study is that we do need some better interventions. For example, we probably need some better forms of insecticide which can be used for indoor residual spraying or combined with the mosquito nets. And there is a comment alongside the article, John, isn't there? It's basically saying, okay, we've got a negative result here, but we've still got to keep focusing. Yeah, on absolutely. It's it's definitely saying don't give up. There's an urgent need for alternative interventions or perhaps just uh, alternative ways of implementing the current interventions we have and work needs to be done on as, as much as on new drugs or perhaps even vaccines against malaria, then uh, work needs to be done on uh, new insecticides. Moving on, you've got a phase two vaccine trial this is looking at meningococcal disease type b 
obviously which can cause meningitis. So t- tell us first of all about meningococcal serotype B, how we deal with it at the moment, because it can be, well it is a very nasty infection, isn't it, in, in young adults? In children and potentially in young adults as well in high income countries which have vaccination programs for meningitis. We've dealt fairly effectively with uh, most of the um, uh, meningococcal groups. So we've got vaccines against A and C, for example, but we don't have a, what you might call a universal uh, vaccine against uh, meningococcal B disease. And that's because the strains of meningococcal B tend to be um, quite diverse. And developing one vaccine which will counter this diversity of strains has proven to be rather difficult. So what's happened in the past is when there have been epidemics of meningococcal disease, then very specific vaccines have been developed against uh, the particular outbreak causing strain. And this has happened in uh, Norway, I believe, in New Zealand, I think in Cuba as well. However, those, those vaccines cannot then be applied to different outbreaks in uh, other countries by and large. So what the investigators have done in this study is that they have uh, developed a vaccine uh, which has been designed uh, using some rather clever and complex molecular biological techniques to give broad coverage against a diverse range of meningococcus serogroup B strains. Tell us about the findings. They seem, on the face of it, pretty encouraging. I think so. So this is this is a phase two study. So mm. the, the primary endpoints are immunological. There isn't a protection, uh, is, isn't an endpoint in this study. And uh, I mean, the study just isn't big enough to show protection. But the, this sort of study is incredibly important uh, if we're going to go forward with these with new vaccines. Volunteers were randomized to either placebo or to one of three doses of, of vaccine and the vaccine showed to have very good immunogenicity and good bactericidal activity against a range of meningococcal strains which is exactly what the vaccine was designed to do. These are very promising results going forward into the next phase of study. Encouraging findings so what happens next, I suppose the simple answer is phase three, or is it more complicated than that? I think phase three is a nice summary of what <laughs> needs to happen next. And then you can argue what sort of phase three trial do you want to do. Now, this is a, is a relatively rare disease. If you were going to do a phase three trial in a situation where there wasn't an, an epi- epidemic going on, then it, it's likely that either you'd have to have a massive nationwide trial of some sort in order to get sufficient uh, efficacy endpoints, or you would get once again again you would look for immunogenicity as your as your kind of sort of surrogate endpoint of effectiveness and that is what I mean vaccine trials like that do happen take flu vaccines for example but perhaps it might be possible to use this vaccine in a phase three trial in a um, an epidemic situation I mean there has been an epidemic recently in France uh, which was a uh, and the Lancet infectious diseases published a paper on on that very epidemic in the past year and that sort of situation with an ongoing epidemic then perhaps you could have um, actual vaccine efficacy as, a, as an endpoint. I'm speculating here. Uh, however, I feel pretty confident that this vaccine will be taken forward into um, phase three trials, whatever form they may take. Sticking with vaccination, I was quite surprised to read the conclusions of review, which says that uh, HPV, human papillomavirus vaccination campaigns in boys and young men is probably worth considering. And I have to ask myself the question, why? What are the main points? Obviously, all the details are, are in the review. But of course, one thinks of HPV vaccination being primarily targeted at young girls before sexual activity. Absolutely right. So why would you give the HPV vaccine to men? Well, of course, human papillomavirus does cause a head and neck cancers. It causes anal cancers. It causes penile cancers in men. So that's potentially a reason for doing it. However, we need to accumulate evidence that the, the vaccines that we have available at the moment are 
actually useful in uh, preventing those sort of cancers. And of course, there is also a case for giving HPV vaccine to men to stop men from transmitting the human papillomavirus to women where it will cause cervical cancer. And so what the authors of this review have done is that they have looked at Australia as a sort of case study for the effectiveness of giving HPV vaccine. Now Australia was one of the first was the country where a lot of the early work in HPV vaccination was done and was the first country to introduce a sort of nationwide HPV vaccination amongst girls. So it has got longer term experience than uh, probably any other country in the world. And the authors of uh, this study do conclude that it would be cost effective to offer HPV vaccine to boys. And I believe that the Australian government is very seriously considering introducing this as as a policy. However, this will still be seen as a controversial conclusion in some quarters. And so to go along with this review, we did something quite unusual for a review article, which is to get a, a commentary on the subject. And we got a commentary from a scientist called David Salisbury, who's a consultant to the UK government on vaccination policy. He has interpreted, if you like, for countries other than Australia and for the UK in particular, how this sort of evidence accumulated by the authors uh, um, might be used um, in settings out- outside of Australia. Very interesting. I'm sure we're going to hear more about this topic. I think very interesting and unexpected, I thought, for, for me anyway, to read that. Thanks, John. And finally, and, and I don't say and finally in a trivial way, because it's um, pretty, pretty dark account, really, of, of a woman who, in the Netherlands who became very, very ill with what would appear to be Marburg hemorrhagic fever. Tell us more about that. Yes, well, this is a woman, a 41-year-old woman who'd been on holiday in Uganda and a few days after getting back from Uganda, then she was admitted to hospital with a history of fever, rigors, uh, muscle pain, headaches. And eventually after some um, fairly complex and detailed uh, and wide-ranging investigation, she was uh, diagnosed with having um, uh, Marburg uh, hemorrhagic fever, which is, is caused by the Marburg um, virus. And unfortunately Unfortunately, she died about nine days after her um, after her illness started. But the sort of bare bones of this story have been reported before at the time it happened, because of course it was quite newsworthy at the time it happened. Uh, a case of Marburg in uh, in Europe is, uh, is is pretty unusual. However, this is a um, uh, this is the type of paper we call a grand round. So this is a, a pretty detailed um, case report, and then that case report is used as a basis for a um, a review of. Uh, Marburg fever in general. I think the the message here is that uh, there's for most of us, there's very little to be worried about in terms of Marburg. But if you are going to go to places in um, Central Africa where it is known to exist, then uh, there are certain things to be aware of. For example, of visiting a cave that's full of bats. Bats are almost certainly a vector of the disease of the virus. is probably not such a great idea for, for returning travellers from one of these countries who present with these sort of symptoms. Then I think doctors need to have a very, very high in, uh, index of, of suspicion that something much more complex than they would see in their their regular uh, clinical life is uh, and, and much rarer.